Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. We're joined from the US by Alistair Gray, who's our US financial correspondent. Our guest this week in the US is Jeremy Allaire, who's head of payments business Circle. This week, we'll be discussing the latest news from Lloyds Bank as it goes on the acquisition trail. We'll look at the US payments business in the light of that interview that Alistair has with Jeremy Allaire at Circle. And also we'll be doing our predictions for 2017. First, though, to Lloyds. And Martin Antonio Hortosorio, the chief exec of Lloyds, has gone on the acquisition trail, making his first big acquisition since he started as CEO, what, five years ago. An interesting development for them. It is, yeah. This is Lloyd's first acquisition since it bought HBOS, which was a pretty catastrophic deal that led to it ultimately being bailed out by the British government just after the 2008 financial crisis. This one has gone down pretty well with analysts and investors. Shares are up 3% in Lloyd's. It's basically about the UK's biggest high street lender by market share of deposits with about 25 to 30% in that market, boosting its market share in some areas where it's a bit weaker. And one of those is credit cards. And it's also doing that to offset the pain that it's taking from low interest rates in its mortgage business, which is a huge business, by going into a riskier business like credit cards, where it charges higher interest rates and makes higher profits. So basically, it's paying, what, £1.9 billion for the UK credit card business of MBNA, which is currently owned by Bank of America. Is that right? Yeah. It's buying a £7 billion credit card portfolio called MBNA from the US bank, Bank of America, which has owned it for several years, tried to sell it once previously, but failed. And it's paying $1.9 billion for the equity in that business. Lloyd's thinks that it can achieve some pretty good cost synergies by combining the operations of MBNA with its own credit card business and also some funding synergies because Lloyd's has one of the lowest costs of funding in the UK banking sector and can therefore fund the business more cheaply than Bank of America has been. The key to the deal related to the exposure of MBNA to future compensation charges for payment protection insurance. If you remember this big scandal that's cost all the the banks tens of billions of pounds and MBNA wrote quite a bit of business that included PPI protection for customers and a lot of them have claimed compensation and more claims are expected to come. Now Lloyd's threatened to walk away from the deal unless Bank of America agreed to cap its exposure to PPI at the level that it's taken provisions for and Bank of America eventually agreed and that was key to getting this deal over the line. So there is 
is a £240 million provision that has already been taken. And if the claims in the future exceed that, then Bank of America will pick up the tab, not Lloyd's. Okay, so it's gone down well with investors, as you say. It's a bit of a moment for Lloyd's, eight years after the financial crisis, to be on the front foot again. Comes as the suggestions that the government might sell out of its last 7% even in the first quarter of next year. I suppose the only question on this deal is whether it'll actually happen because, yes, the companies have signed the deal, but it's subject to the go-ahead from competition authorities. And this would give Lloyd's a 25% market share in this business. Now, that is in line with its market share in other areas, thanks to its acquisition of HBOS. But that's pretty controversial, isn't it? Having a quarter of the market in one bank. Do you think there'll be any pitches there? I'd say two things about that. One is there won't be the market leader. Barclay Card has, I think, 28 29%. Lloyd's will be behind them still with 26% after this deal. Secondly, Lloyds was asked about this on the call with analysts this morning and said that they'd done quite a lot of work on the competition side of things. They were fairly confident, not only because they wouldn't be the number one, but also because they pointed out that the regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, had recently done a review of competition in credit cards in the UK and found that, broadly speaking, it was a well-functioning market. So they're pretty confident. You're right, though, that I think this will be something the competition authority will look at because it will mean that more than half the market is in the hands of the two biggest players. So there could be some concerns. They may be forced to dispose of a little bit here or there. But given that Barclay Card is bigger than them, I think that they've got a pretty strong case. Okay, let's move on to our second topic of the day. Alistair Gray in New York has been talking to Jeremy Allaire, who's the head of Circle, the payments business which is backed by Goldman Sachs. So Jeremy, if I just downloaded your app, talk me through how I'd go about using it. If you grab the app from the Apple App Store, Android, Google Play Store, or just go to it on the web, you can connect any existing bank account that you have in the US, UK, and many European countries. You can connect your social graph and your contacts, and you can make and receive person-to-person payments using email addresses, mobile phone numbers, QR codes. So you have lots of different ways to invoke and request and make payments peer-to-peer. The actual experience is a messaging-based experience. So your payment is just part of an ongoing conversation with other people. You can include photos and emojis and GIFs and money and perform those person-to-person payment tasks. If you receive a payment, you can cash out straight away to any linked funding source, bank account, debit card, etc. And um, that's a free service for consumers. It works uh, both within your own currency and across currencies as well. And it's instant, is it, when you transfer cash. It is. The way that money works today in the traditional banking system is it's not instant. There's time delays, there's tolls and taxes and fees that are applied along the way. You know, through the application of blockchain technology, artificial intelligence and machine learning, as well as just what's possible now with cloud software and mobile platforms, we can do these things more efficiently. We can make value move faster and deliver a user experience where if I have dollars and they happen to be in my existing bank account and I've linked a debit card, I can beam dollars to you and you'll instantly receive those and can cash them out or use them for your own personal payment. So how do you make money? So in the phase that we're in right now, we're not really focused on generating revenue from this product. And one way to think about it is if you look at the great consumer internet companies, what they really started with was taking something that in the past was maybe cumbersome or slow or expensive or, or maybe not even possible 
and make it instant, global, free, and delightful, whether that's searching for information or sharing communications or, or content. And they built that as a consumer utility and tr really tried to get it to scale, get it to many millions of customers using it before they introduced products that generated revenue around it. So right now, the focus is just building out this franchise and connecting more markets, more currencies and platforms into Circle and making that work for consumers. We do generate some revenue, just to be clear. So when a consumer is sending a, a social payment to another consumer and that other consumer is using a different currency than they use, where essentially there's a currency cross that takes place, there is actually margin there for us. So we do generate some revenue there. But our approach there is quite different than the rest of the market. So a bank would typically charge you a fee, it would have several days of time delays, and it would charge you a 3% spread on the market FX rate. So pretty expensive. You know, Traditional money transmission companies like Western Union similarly would have a fee plus a spread. And newer companies, like say a TransferWise, they may have a fee of a few dollars plus a spread, which is smaller than the bank spread, but still a spread of something like 1% to 2%. So what we've done is we've built a model where Essentially, there's no fee. There's not like an upfront fee or a transaction fee, but there is a margin. And so if I send you dollars and you receive pounds instantly, there's 30 bips of spread on, on the uh, exchange rate there. And that's the best available economics for a consumer today. So it's very generous and we want to drive adoption and drive volume. What strategies do you have in mind in future to become profitable? So we're not obviously talking about all the details of our long-term strategies, but our focus is on building and scaling consumer adoption of next-generation payment accounts and ultimately offering consumers other financial products that would generate revenue for us and also generate value for consumers. But we're not really getting more specific than that at this point. Isn't this infrastructure really, isn't it just a matter of time before it's really controlled by the banks and or the mobile operators? What's going to be the need for the third parties? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the history of the internet, people thought that, say, the media companies or the communications companies, the mobile operators, the telephone operators were going to be the ones providing the major services to consumers. But it actually turned out not to be the case. It turned out that pure software companies that built on top of the open internet and built on top of open platforms actually dominated the consumer relationships. And I think in this world of internet-based consumer finance and deliver of financial products over the internet, that you'll have traditional players certainly that are significant in, in this market. But I do think you're going to see pure tech-based companies, internet-based, technology-based companies that are building completely new global franchises that are over the top, that work over any operator carrier, that work over any platform, any operating system, any messaging platform, and work with any currency in the world. So today, more than any time in history, really, as money literally just becomes software and data, there's nothing more than just software and data involved. The opportunity for new internet-based technology-driven, software-driven companies to emerge to provide those experiences and products to consumers is more enormous than ever. All right, Jeremy Wolf, thanks so much. And for a seasonal end segment to our banking podcast, we're now going to have a go at predicting what 2017 will bring. Let me start with you, Martin. What's your top tip? So gazing into my crystal ball, I really don't think I'm going out on a limb much with this, but there will be several big banks that will announce that they are opening EU subsidiaries. They have acquired licenses to operate in the EU. They've taken actual decisions and taken action 
to protect themselves against the risk that Brexit cuts off their UK business from the rest of the EU. And I think we'll see Japanese banks, I think we'll see British banks even, and obviously the big US banks that have large operations here in the city, starting to take these first steps towards moving some businesses out of the city into Eurozone countries. Okay. Laura, on to you. More of a regulatory theme. Yeah, I think that we'll probably see the end of global financial regulation being a big issue next year. So early in the new year, I expect they will agree Basel IV and then everyone will go home to their respective countries and do something different. The overall level of support for these big global standards has just faded completely. You've seen the EU arguing against part of Basel IV. We expect that the new administration in the US is going to be far less buying in to the idea that banks in the US should be bound by these big global things. So I think that in terms of Basel being the hard stop for banks, that day is really over. And I think it'll be in the next year that we really see that coming through. Does that, do you think, signal an end or at least the beginning of the end for big global banks as well? Arguably, if you think about what's happened in the last few years, actually before the crisis, we had bigger, more internationally diverse banks, even though we had less globally led financial regulation policies. So actually, the two haven't gone as hand in hand as neatly as you might have expected, because even when we did have this big high level global policy making being quite an important thing from an individual bank perspective, There was still a lot of differences in the way various countries implemented various things and there was still a level of protectionism for banks in their own country. So the idea of having the level playing field even across the EU hasn't really panned out in such a way that it would actually facilitate big global international banking and make that easier. Okay. My prediction for the year, I think, is going to be a slightly counterintuitive, upbeat story about European banking. We're closing 2016 with what looks like it's going to be the bailout of Italy's third biggest bank, Monte di Paschi, and a 20 billion fund for bailouts of other troubled banks there. This looks like failure, but I suppose you can look at it positively in the sense that it's potentially finally going to end the uncertainty over the future of the Italian banking sector. Martin is shaking his head, but I'm being deliberately upbeat, trying to cure my normal cynicism about things. If that works, and it may well not, but if it does, then it arguably could stop the rot more broadly around Europe, because obviously there is a risk of contagion. As long as there are problems in one country like Italy, people worry that they could transfer to other peripheral areas of the Eurozone like Portugal. And Germany, of course, has been very much in the spotlight in 2016, particularly the plight of Deutsche Bank. But as Martin was pointing out before the show, their shares are up, I think, 80% since their lows only a few months ago. And so perhaps even they have turned the corner, even if they haven't got a long-term credible strategy yet outlined, they will be able to get through, one would have thought, the US penalties from mortgage product mis-selling and also potentially be able to go to the market and raise a rights issue. So let's take an upbeat view to finish our podcast for today. So that's it for this week and for this year. We'll now take a two-week break and we'll be back with the Banking Weekly podcast on January the 10th. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until January, goodbye. And in the meantime, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.